Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. Later, a longtime doctor in the region says he's saddened at how COVID-19 has morphed into a political issue as far as the vaccinations. Dr. Stuart Tobin has also written a book about the stonewalls his group faced in trying to build a public library in Madison County some decades ago. That discussion is coming up shortly, but first for all of us, it's hard to power through the pandemic and keep focus on goals, but that's what the Pritchard Committee for Academic Excellence is pushing for when it comes to education. It's something they call a big, bold future. Right now, there are all kinds of challenges. The Pritchard Committee also believes there are opportunities that shouldn't be missed, even now. Bridget Blom is the president and CEO of the Pritchard Committee. She once served on a local school board herself and has spent her career in public policy. Bridget, welcome. We really appreciate you coming in. Thank you, Thanks Bill. Thanks for being here. Uh, the, the committees are trying to make the point. This is hard. There are horrible disruptions going on our, uh, to our schools and all of our lives, uh, but all is not lost, and you want to make sure that momentum is not lost in education. Absolutely. We can't lose momentum in education, Bill. Um, Kentucky worked hard over the last three decades to improve our outcomes in education, and at the same time, we didn't improve um, income or decrease poverty. So Kentucky still lingers six from the bottom of the nation in poverty. If we're going to change quality of life, um, increase income in the state, it has to be through increased education attainment. So we can't let COVID slow us down. So when you speak of a big, bold future, what is the vision there? So it's increased investment in education to ensure we're getting those better outcomes, childcare, K-12 education, and especially post-secondary education. At this time when now and the future is going to demand more of Kentuckians with respect to degrees, credentials, and certifications, we need to really be focusing as a state on post-secondary education. But it also means that we're seeing increases in some of the metrics um, like income, median household income in the state, that we're seeing increases in metrics like healthy births um, for young people, health indicators. So a big, bold future means the quality of life in Kentucky is better and more families, individuals, and communities um, have a quality of life which they enjoy. How challenging is it for schools and teachers to meet students where they are right now, given uh, you, you know the the emotional and, and, and academic setbacks that the last year and a half has, has brought on us? It's a tough time for our teachers, um, for our students, and for their families. You know, everyone's not gone back to work yet. There are still pressures with trying to maintain home life and work life and getting kids back to school. What we do know um, in the middle of a global health pandemic is that there are things that work. Vaccinations and masking will help us keep our kids in school and learning and keep us moving forward. And so we hope that as um, citizens across Kentucky are having conversations, they're focusing on that end goal of keeping our students learning and keeping our state moving forward. Well, a mask debate is coming to a local school board near you uh, because of the, of the, uh, the actions of the legislature in uh, doing away with the statewide mandate. Uh, you served on a local school board, as we noted. Uh, what kind of pressure are they going to face 
in the next few days because this has to be done quickly. Yeah, elected leaders in our school districts are facing extreme pressure right now, but they don't have to be health experts, and our superintendents don't have to be health experts. They do need to follow the health expertise um, at the national level and the state level to ensure in-person learning continues. When this pandemic hit us in 2020, um, so many folks wanted kids back in school. That was before the vaccine. Kentucky's approach was to keep students at home and do virtual learning. We know that we failed a lot of kids doing that. No fault of our educators, but the pandemic had a negative impact on learning. For kids furthest behind, possibly an additional nine to 11 months um, of negative impact on them, they're behind. So we need to get kids back in person. And to do that, we need to take all the safety measures that science tells us um, are helpful. Bridget, there are some indications that some fell off the map. Some, some students uh, couldn't be tracked by some of the school districts. That's right. And so that needs to be job one for our districts. And I believe it has been job one for them, finding those students that they lost through virtual learning, getting them back into the school setting, reconnecting with them and their families. Right. Again, the economy of the future is not going to give any of us a pass. Nobody's going to say Kentucky's off the hook because of the global pandemic. I know you monitored the, uh, the special legislative session and, and schools were seeking more flexibility when it comes to NTI days or, or some way that they could uh, you know, if they can't meet in person, they could do something. They did get some extra days. Uh, will the new rules accommodate to what we're facing right now? Well, the new rules will accommodate what we're facing if we take the science seriously and protect ourselves in the midst of the pandemic. Um, so if we ensure as many folks as possible and who are eligible are vaccinated, and if we're masking when we're in large groups, or if we're masking when we have any concern that we are bringing an illness into the environment. So if we're taking those precautions, then the added flexibility should allow our districts to keep our students learning and for there to be minimal disruptions. One element of that Senate Bill 1 gives schools some additional money to, to deal with safety protocols and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, as you monitor the, the money coming in under the, the American Rescue Plan, uh, I know you're urging schools to use it wisely and to, uh, to consider carefully what they're going to do. That's right. So it's an unprecedented infusion of federal dollars into each and every one of our local school districts. We've encouraged school districts to bring communities to the t bring community members and organizations to the table in planning for recovery from COVID. So we know out of school time programs, other community based organizations have a lot to offer in helping our students catch up. Um, and we hope that local districts will avail themselves of that expertise. Sometimes there's a cost to that expertise and they have the resources um, to get to, de to dedicate to some of those strategic priorities. A great example is one of our Pritchard Committee members in Ashland, Kentucky, Norma Meek, um, a retired educator and nonprofit leader. She's put together a plan for intensive tutoring to help students catch up um, from learning loss and to also help students catch up developmentally from a social standpoint. She's been out to school districts around the Ashland area asking for some of those um, ARP dollars, American Rescue Plan dollars, um, and they have granted those dollars to her to launch this program.
I note that uh, Pritchard has uh, also an, an effort you call the Groundswell Initiative. Uh, and one example given of, of that is mentoring. So I guess that's an example. That's right. right. So that's an example of Norma taking it upon herself, um, identifying a need, and developing a solution and bringing people along with her. Can we improve outcomes with more community members uh, stepping up and getting involved in that kind of way? Absolutely we can. So we have for far too long said our public schools can do it by themselves. And the fact of the matter is our public schools between the hours of 7 in the morning and 3 p.m. cannot um, make sure that our students are learning and progressing at the level they need to to compete in the future. So community-based organizations and citizens reaching out um, to each other, working in their sphere of influence, whether that be Sunday schools or Rotary Clubs, uh, Boy Scouts, whatever it might be, the football team, and making sure those football players are ready to successfully transition from high school. Um, Kentuckians can have a significant impact and influence. Are businesses involved in the way they, they, weren't, they once were uh, for instance, I remember the initiatives of the old Ashland Oil Company mm -hmm. back, you know, mm -hmm. very involved in education at, at, at every level. Do we need more of that now? You know, Bill, the landscape of um, uh, corporate, I think, life has changed, where Kentucky used to be home to a number of hubs. Um, I think our multinational um, uh, industry environment now has changed much of that. But many businesses are very much involved. Toyota is a great example of investing in apprenticeship opportunities, getting kids into engineering programs early, supporting um, junior, um, kind of junior achievement programs and others. So we do have those examples. We talked about the community. Uh, you also push hard for family and parental engagement in schools. Uh, how important is that relationship between schools and families? It's critical. And it's actually a bright spot that we saw when, when uh, we first started going home when COVID came along. Um, so one thing we heard within the first month from educators and from families is that there was more relationship uh, being built between educators and families in a virtual environment. We know from research that family engagement in their students' learning and in the learning of other students in their peer group helps increase student success. So we're launching a family-friendly school initiative where we have 63 schools across the state in this moment in time, in the middle of COVID, signing up to be part of an early cohort um, to learn best practices around family engagement. There's another metric that caught my eye this week indicating that almost 60% uh, of college students, and you talked about higher ed being an, an mm -hmm. area that we need to, to focus on, uh, nearly 60% of college students are women 40% are men. Is that gap something to address, or does it reflect that uh, young men are pointed uh, toward uh, employment that doesn't require a, a degree? Uh, employment of the future will require some type of a degree. It may not be a four-year degree. It may not even be a two-year degree. It might be a certificate or a credential. It might be something that you achieve through an apprenticeship program, um, like uh, becoming an electrician or a plumber. Um, but Kentuckians are going to need some level of education and a marketable certification um, to compete in the economy of the future. What can so schools that do gap to, should yeah. concern us. So what should schools do to re-engage uh, young men who are coming of age? So I think one, our, our high schools and we as um, Kentuckians need to do a better job helping our young people understand different paths for them as they enter adulthood. Um, recently, Kentucky Stats, the Council on Post-Secondary Education and the Kentucky Department of Education released a, um, a student right to know portal 
which, ga which gives students the information they need to know what careers are out there, what careers are in demand in Kentucky, and the wages they would earn in those careers. Also, the certification that they need. So that type of awareness is critical. Um, you know, we saw in some surveying that we were doing through COVID that young people are really questioning the value proposition of higher education. And we've known that for some time, but COVID has probably exacerbated that issue. We need to do a better job helping young people understand what's on the horizon and why some type of marketable degree or certificate um, is necessary. We also probably need to do, a, not even probably, we need to do a better job making sure the high school diploma is meaningful. So it's not just the knowledge that kids need, it's the skills they need to compete. And those are the soft skills, the executive skills, um, problem solving, communication, collaboration, teamwork. Um, those are the skills we need to somehow make sure our students know they're developing and we're certifying that development in some way. Kentucky has a historic budget surplus of over a billion dollars uh, right now. Uh, we also know that uh, billions of dollars is coming in from these uh, federal uh, efforts to, uh, to try to uh, jumpstart the economy. Um, are we at a, a crossroads uh, about the kind of investments that we, we make in education in the state going forward? Well, investment and investment in things that work is always important. So the legislature evaluating what's working and what isn't working or what's working and could be taken to scale is really important. So a great example of that is um, a bill that Senator West forwarded in the last, legisla last legislative session, which will be behind this time around. And that's to take um, a reading program that was an innovation a number of years ago under Sen Senator Westwood that's proven successful in increasing early reading proficiency. And so Senator West wants to take Take that to scale, um, increase investment, and make sure more of our schools, especially those um, with with students who are underperforming, have those resources. Other priorities Pritchard would have for the legislature, which will be meeting in about uh, three or four months now. That's right. So uh, uh, you know, investment in childcare, investment in post-secondary education, and circling around, Bill, back to your question about the gaps between women and men in post-secondary. Adult learners are something we need to start talking more about too. We have a lot of Kentuckians who either have very little post-secondary education, um, some college, and they could go back and complete those degrees. And so that's an important strategy for a state that still uh, lags the nation in educational attainment. If you miss the boat, you can still jump on. <laughs> you can still jump on. And our surveying, again, in COVID, adults were saying, we understand the value proposition of higher education now, but we question the affordability. So if the legislature can start working on that affordability issue, we're confident our Council on Post-Secondary Education is going to work with our universities to get those folks back. Bridget Blum, as always, thanks for coming back. Thank Good you, Good information Bill. about our schools. Stay with us now. Dr. Stuart Tobin will join us next. He wonders how the pandemic became so political when it comes to vaccines and talks about building a library against tough opposition some years ago. Coming up. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Dr. Stuart Tobin is a longtime dermatologist in the region, but he is also quite a wordsmith. He recently wrote of the pandemic, there is no drill bit of truth or facts that can penetrate the permafrost of passionate political fiction iced over by glacial denial. 
We'll get him to explain that. He is frustrated by how America and Kentucky have become so polarized on how to respond to a deadly threat. The original reason we invited Dr. Tobin in is that he's also out with a book about the struggle to build a public library in Madison County decades ago that he was involved in. It came soon after he pulled off I-75 and made Richmond his home. It's a story repeated in many of our counties for reasons uh, that he'll explain in the book, which is called The Bookworm and the Serpent. So that'll need explaining as well. Dr. Tobin, thanks for coming. We appreciate it. Well, thank Welcome. you for the invitation. Uh, first on the pandemic, you have uh, been frustrated by the, the politics and the polarization this, uh, that we have seen as we try to tame a virus that uh, has killed more than 7,000 Kentuckians. Yes, that's correct. And the number's approaching 8,000 now. So, uh, and most of those people are unvaccinated. So at this point, so the Delta vi virus uh, variant of the COVID-19 is 10 times more infected than the COVID-19 that started. So we're seeing the uh, typical path for uh, viruses which mutate. And so Charles Darwin explained that very clearly, that mutation followed by survival. And so this virus can survive better in a mutated form than it did in the original form, becoming more infectious. And we'll see, perhaps see another virus variant that will uh, even trump this one. So this is an ongoing story. We do have measures. We have an ability to prevent this from happening. And that can be done by the simple measures that everyone's aware of, getting your vaccine, going ahead and wearing a mask, staying six feet away from people, uh, good hand washing. All those sanitary measures are extremely effective in preventing the spread of the virus and protecting people. Not only protecting individuals, but protecting your loved ones. And you, you've scratched your head and wondered how uh, politics kind of became part of this whole uh, attempt to respond. Well, the question that, that has bothered me or I've been wondered about is why isn't there the same passionate response in opposition to other viral vaccines, to the MMR vaccine, to the influenza vaccine given every year, chickenpox, varicella, uh, to herpes zoster, and all the other viruses that people can protect themselves from. There isn't this, this outrage against those types of vaccines. So why is this virus vaccine singled out politically? because it's been made political. And the more you make it political and, and link it passionately to a uh, cultural or political uh, viewpoint, uh, people uh, won't sift through the facts as well. And they are, uh, will ignore or deny uh, the truth or the, uh, that, that would lead them to an, an appropriate uh, decision. In medicine, we use gather the information, get the facts, distill it, and then come to a conclusion. You don't, we don't start with a conclusion and then fit to uh, get all the information we want to fit that conclusion, because that deprives you of making an honest assessment. It would be my hope that people who have the opportunity to uh, evaluate, who haven't gotten the vaccine, to do so and look at it in an honest way. There, and the, there are two types of groups of people who aren't getting vaccine. They're the anti-vaxxers, and those are people who are intransient. They're, they're not going to, intractable, they're not going to go ahead and get the vaccine. But there's a very large group of, of vaccine-hesitant people. Vaccine-hesitant people have the opportunity to be informed and work with to help them to understand why it's, why it's there 
best interest to get the vaccine. And then you have to look at those groups that are vaccine hesitant. And those are people in the minority groups, people of uh, color and uh, uh, Hispanics uh, who maybe because of uh, uh, being undocumented gives them a fear or maybe not having the knowledge or maybe not having the transportation yeah. to get there. So all those things represent impediments which we do have control and can improve on. I want to pivot to, to your book and an interesting discussion uh, certainly about the, the, the vaccine uh, vaccine dilemma. Uh, but let's talk about you, you had a passion to build a library in Madison County that you made your home in the, in the 1970s. Uh, you talk about how education lifted you and, and, and enlightened you. Was that what drove you to, to want to build a library? When I was a kid, uh, one of my great pleasures when I was five years old that my mother took me to the public library in Mount Vernon, New York to get a library card. And that opened up an incredible vista for me to read, to see humor, to learn about facts, to learn about history, uh, fiction, stories, adventure. And all that uh, stimulated me to become the person that I am. And I would like everyone in this state, and especially our county, to have that equal opportunity that I had. So that was probably my motivation. So you got going and you were faced with fierce opposition. Did that surprise you? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, so people have passions, and they're passionate about certain facts or certain information, and uh, they'll act on it. So in a way, it was surprising, because who would think that a library would be controversial? But as it turned out, it was the most controversial inflammatory event and issue of our county since slavery and the Civil War. And so we had to, to work with that, and uh, it made, brought us into the public eye. And on the positive side, it made people aware who were uh, also neutral about the library to have to take a side. And they were persuadable. Yes. <laughs> uh, why the title, The Bookworm and the Serpent? Ah. We had a little icon, which was a bookworm, and we were getting signatures for a petition to present to the fiscal court. Now, and every time we got so many signatures, we would fill in and color the bookworm segment. Well, the opposition, which was uh, very violent or, or very intractable, uh, took our bookworm and labeled it as a serpent and snake to be crushed and destroyed. So we had these two symbols. We had the bookworm, which we were propagating, and they had uh, uh, interpreted it as a snake and serpent. So I thought a good name for the book would be The Bookworm and the Serpent because I think it illustrates the theme very well of this controversy and inflammatory uh, uh, problems that we were experiencing. As you look back to those decades ago, if you had it to do all over again, would you do it? Would you fight that fight? Yes. Uh, look at the product that we have. Look at the opportunities that people have. Thomas Jefferson thought that every state and every county should have a public library because it was a free college. People with their motivation could get an education without having to expend great deals of money or time at their own leisure to get educated. So this is the opportunity to do that. And in our small way, in our little county, I felt 
we, we needed to be for help fulfill Thomas Jefferson's aspirations. If people want to read your book and uh, get a, their own copy, uh, it's readily available. And you said that you, you invite people just to contact you, right? We have the information that uh, we'll put on the screen there. Yes, yes. Which is uh, Stuart Tobin at bellsouth.net. And uh, we even in, uh, include your phone number there because you'll take those as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hopefully they won't be collect phone calls. All right. Listen, we appreciate uh, you very much uh, for the discussion and, uh, and, and good luck with the book. As more people read it, it's available in some of our public libraries as well. I know you've, you've yes, gotten that word out. Yes. Thank you. So if you don't want to purchase the book, go to your public library and read it. <laughs> There's your picture of the library. <laughs> okay, Dr. Thank Tobin, you, Bill. Thank you. We appreciate you. And stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. The nation is hitting a new bleak pandemic milestone and another COVID variant is now grabbing worldwide attention. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the details. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren and here's your full court fast break. The U.S. now counting more than 40 million COVID infections. Last week, more than a quarter of new cases were children. And overall, deaths and hospitalizations are up. And now this, a new variant emerging, the Mu variant. It has already been detected in dozens of countries and is in nearly every, if not every, U.S. state. The WHO warns the Mu variant could be more resistant to vaccines and to natural antibodies than other strains. But right now, experts say the Delta variant is still the most troubling. That's because it is highly contagious and with just over 50% of Americans fully vaccinated, Delta is tearing through the nation. We recently spoke to infectious disease expert, Dr. Jeannie Morazzo. She warns variants will keep popping up if the world does not boost its vaccine numbers. Mutations are inevitable. Some of them are gonna be worse than others from our perspective. Better for the virus but worse for us. The problem that we're seeing now is we have so many unvaccinated people, as you know, in so many parts of the world and in the U.S., unfortunately, that it's like a machine for the virus. Basically, it's like a factory where the virus can just generate mutants as it infects people. And eventually, the strongest mutant is going to win out. And that's what the real concern is, one of the many concerns with having such a large pool of unvaccinated people. Experts say in order for the U.S. to achieve herd immunity, between 70 and 85 percent of Americans need to be vaccinated. So far, no state has achieved that 70 percent benchmark. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 on WKYT. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. We certainly thank you for joining us, and we hope you make it a good week ahead.